Dear Heavenly Father, we um, do want to acknowledge you as God tonight. And you are God. You are King. You are sovereign, even if the world and us at times don't actually fully act that way. And Lord Jesus, tonight we come before you and we ask that you would forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness by um, the work you did on the cross. And Father God, right now we may know complete freedom. We may just believe your word the way you said it, Lord, that we are now free. We are now holy, Lord Jesus. And Father God, that we might be people who just are inspired by this to live lives of mission, whether it be university or workplaces or family, Lord Jesus. Father God, we thank you for this night. We thank you for the country we live in. We thank you for just uh, who you place in power, that it is by your sovereignty that you appoint leaders to the tops of nations. So we ask, Lord Jesus, that with Kevin Rudd and the Labor Party, Lord, that you would, you would really use them for your glory. God, that you would just do amazing things, Father God. We pray that, yeah, that even as, as bizarre as it sounds, Lord God, that this leadership would be just used by you for your kingdom. We don't know how, Father God, but we just ask that you would do that. Father God, we thank you for this night. And we thank you for that many of us are feeling lighter because the exams are over and uh, deadlines are passed, Lord. And we just want to praise you tonight, Lord, and come before you and say, oh, just lead us afresh, Lord. Lead us afresh. Help us live lives that glorify you. Help us live lives, uh, be people with hearts and minds that know more fully every day that you are God. Just change us, Lord. We just ask that tonight, by the end of this service, we would not be the same. That we would go away with here with, with more conviction to live for you, with more encouragement, with a fresh infilling of your spirit, Lord Jesus. Father God, that the world may be changed as a result of people here living for you. We thank you for this night. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the Bible verse for tonight comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. Cool, so starting from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. 
The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example of those who would, be, who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the, pro the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. I might actually just grab my Bible back off you. Always comes in handy for one of these occasions. Okay. Well, my name's Chris. It's been a pleasure being here uh, with you, Wodonga slash Albury. I'm not really sure how that works still, uh, this church lot. But um, we've had a great time, and uh, I've been living with the Stevens, Ken and Faye and Tim, and I've enjoyed a nice healthy diet of freshly shot deer and... Uh, <laughs> various other wonders, so it's been very much appreciated. Okay, so tonight we're having a look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Well, I'm sure you're all familiar with the ancient Greek legend of the Trojan horse, but let me just go through the story once more with you. The legend tells us of the way in which the Greek army built a giant wooden horse, complete with an army of its men hiding inside to lay siege to the city of Troy. The custom in ancient times was for the defeated general to give his horse to, this, to the victorious general as a sign of respect. Thus, the whole concept of uh, a horse was an appropriate symbol with which to deceive the city of Troy. You can imagine the, the Trojan response to the horse. The Greeks were essentially admitting defeat and at the same time giving him an awesome gift. In the, in the eyes of the Trojans, all their Christmases had come at once. However, we all know the outcome. When the Trojans were partying themselves into a drunken stupor, much like uh, Friday Night Dean Street, I'd imagine, uh, the, Greeks crept, the Greeks crept out of the horse one by one. What the Trojans had seen as something worth partying about turned out, turned out to be a way by which the Greeks were able to pillage the city, kill all the men, and put all the women and children into slavery. The Trojans had fallen victim to deceit in its deadliest form. Have you ever had something as big as a Trojan horse deceive you? What was it that made you so sure that you were on the right track, only to be shown otherwise? Do you ultimately view the true gospel of Jesus Christ as the most important thing in your life, or do you forget the power and forgiveness that it offers and stray into other distorted doctrines and messages that you consider somewhat more enticing. Just like the Trojans, you might, have, uh, who, you might have heard a deceitful message and you thought it sounded great, but it turned out to be destructive. There's a famous illustration by C.S. Lewis where he suggests that 
We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making holidays at the sea, uh, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he not, cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I think you could change that last sentence to we are far too easily deceived. Mud pies are definitely not the beach. So I'd like to stop right now and just make sure that we're all familiar with what the actual true gospel is, what I'm going to be referring to quite a lot throughout this talk. In a nutshell, it's that Christ died in our place for the sins we've committed against God, and it's only through believing and trusting in him that we can be made right with God. Christ has paid the price, sin has been dealt with forever, and we should now live for him. End of story. Well, I've still got a sermon to preach, so it's not quite the end there. Um, Here in chapter 1 of Timothy, we see Paul warning Timothy not to put up with second best, not to buy into false doctrine, nor to be deceived. Just as the Trojans who thought a giant horse was their reason to party, so we can get caught up in a world of deceit also. The danger we face is to forget that it's the true gospel by which we were saved and by which we should live. By Paul's own testimony, we see that Christ's gospel has so much more power to change the hardest of hearts back to God and change lives forever. The sentiments of Paul are clear. Don't accept second best. Stay true to the real gospel because it's the only gospel which is going to save us from God's wrath ultimately. Sometimes it's actually hard for us to see the deceit in which we live even as Christians. So I'm going to bring to light some other thought processes and false doctrines that I consider genuine deception within the church. Messages like the Trojan horse, they come disguised as something good, but I think ultimately lead to to destruction. So you might say, look, to have more money, that's how you know you've been truly blessed. God does, after all, want me to be rich, right? But hang on, what about the words in Luke chapter 7? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Others might say, every Christian should be able to speak in tongues, and uh, if you don't, I guess you're lacking somewhat in your faith. I mean, it's an outward working of the Holy Spirit, right? But the fact is that some have the gift of tongues, others may have the gift of hospitality, and others may have the gift of wise advice. It says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. None are more holy than the other, And none claims to empower you to become some sort of super-Christian. The reality is, you probably succumb to deception more than you realise. We have the ability as Christians to create in our own head a false gospel. Think about those times of worry and sadness in your life when you haven't prayed or read the Bible in ages and, you know, you feel kind of distant from God. You may think that because you're struggling in your prayer life or with a certain sin, that God has stopped loving you. You've essentially created a false doctrine in your mind. But tell me, where in the Bible does it say that God's love is conditional? He has chosen to love us unconditionally. He is the God who, when we were completely ignorant and dead in our sins, still chose to die for us. Friends, whenever you start to think like this, have these thoughts, whenever you start creating in your head a false gospel, I want you to do something. I want you to visualize a Trojan horse. Imagine that this Trojan horse is coming closer to you. 
Now this horse represents all the deceitful lies that Satan will use to distort the truth about God. Now imagine you're holding a baseball bat and written on the baseball bat are the words, Gospel of Truth. Use that bat and smash the daylights out of that horse. We have to bounce everything off the true gospel. In chapter 1 of uh, 1 Timothy, we see Paul having to deal with issues of deceitful talk. We see in verses 3 and 4 that certain men were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies and preaching false doctrines. The issues here were predominantly that the teachers of the law within the church in Ephesus were speaking doctrine that was in essence distorted and had a strong emphasis on Jewish law. But Paul makes it clear to Timothy in verses 4 and 7 of the differences between preaching the false doctrine and just talking about meaningless rubbish to the act of doing God's work. Verse 4 tells us that false doctrine and meaningless talk seem to only promote controversies. In essence, they distract us from the true gospel and hence hamper our attempts to expand God's kingdom by use of the real gospel. A missionary friend of mine once told me that the biggest reason that missionaries leave the mission field isn't actually due to failure to adapt to the culture. It's not even due to the fear of preaching the word in a foreign setting. It's actually to do with it's actually due to other missionaries and the failure to reconcile issues of controversy with them. As Christians, one of the biggest mindsets we should have is the desire to see others come to Christ and not get caught up in meaningless disagreements with others. The only way to see this happen is to be united in the truth of the gospel. So, rather than creating controversies, we see here an instruction to promote God's work, which is by faith, in verse 4. Paul wanted to get the message across to Timothy that to do God's work, it meant that he needed to hold on to the true gospel of faith and not put up with his foolish talk anymore. Therefore, God's work can be viewed in terms of being faithful with the gospel he's given us, while false teaching can be viewed in in terms of anything that pretty much deviates from that. Paul gives us a clear message here. Stay grounded in the true gospel and don't give in to the temptation to follow the meaningless deceit of false teaching. But I think this passage should speak directly to each one of us here today. We should all be ensuring that, like Timothy, we're good stewards of the gospel in our everyday life, at work, at school, when we play footy on Saturdays. This is not just a Sunday night or Sunday morning thing. I'm, I'm from the country too. I'm from a little town called Bort. You may not have heard of it. That's okay. Um, but I understand some of the, the struggles that there is with being a Christian in what can sometimes be a very, a very secular environment in the country. There's a general opposition to the gospel and a stigma to those who believe it. The temptation can sometimes be in this environment to tone down the gospel, to make it a bit more user-friendly. You might say stuff like, well, you know, just make sure you uh, have some sort of belief in God and you'll be fine. Or just be a good person and rock up to church every once in a while and uh, you'll be right. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about need for forgiveness. You know, I remember when I was in high school and some, one of my mates asked me, um, is it wrong for me to sleep with my girlfriend? I said to him, oh, you know, what do I believe and what you need to believe? Maybe two separate things, you know, who's to say who's right and wrong? 
I was an idiot, pretty much. Uh, that was stupid talk, and I recognize that now. Um, but we can't buy into that. We can't let that happen. There's too much at stake. These are spiritually dead people who need, who need the cure of life, not some cheap substitute washed-down answer. Consider the counterfeit penicillin scams that run rife in the third world. Here you have dealers offering sick people penicillin that they can afford. People will buy it because they're desperate to regain their health, and it's at a price they can afford. The problem is, however, that what they're buying is essentially nothing. Containing a mix of random ingredients, the fake penicillin won't necessarily be toxic, but the reality is it's gonna end up, you're going to end up dying anyway because of lack of treatment to a serious illness. So it is with the gospel. Give anyone anything other than the real deal, no matter how much it appeals to them, it is not going to be effective for their salvation. In verse 5, we see the key factor in the difference between false doctrine and God's work, which is being faithful with the true gospel. And that factor is love. Verse 5, the goal of this command is love. And where does this love come from? A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So what are the, one of the ways you know when a Christian speaker is on the right track? Or you could even say... How do I know when I'm on the right track? You might be a Bible study leader or you might mentor someone. Well, think about the motives behind it all. Is the person or yourself trying to build up their own agendas, financial gain, credibility when they preach or teach? Or do they have a true heart for those who don't know Jesus, which is inspired by love? We can so easily fall victim to this in our own lives. When we think we're doing all the right things for God, but it aren't grounded by a motivation of love, then it has the potential <clears throat> to be worthless. Take, for example, evangelism. We've heard uh, Ben come and speak to us tonight about uh, some things that have been going on in the last few days. Now, don't get me wrong, evangelism is awesome. I mean, every, every one of us as Christians should be doing this. It's the way God uses us as his instruments to take his word to lost people. But if we, don't, if we do it out of a sense of obligation or just because our friends are doing it and we feel like we have to, then our motivation runs the risk of damaging the outcome. A love for others and a desire to see them come to Christ should be the motivation for evangelism. And I know there's a whole lot of other issues about when you're a first-time evangelist and you're going out there and your love might not be the key thing. Don't get worried about that. Have a chat with me about that later. <clears throat> But keep in mind that love should be the motivation for everything. Friends, it's so important that we stay grounded in the truth of the gospel and not be swayed by new winds of teaching or social revelations of this modern age. Paul had to remind Timothy of the fact that some had actually succumbed to the danger and wandered from the truth, from this danger. We all know of people who once called themselves Christians in our lives but ultimately wandered from God's true gospel. False teaching is a clear and present danger for believers, which I imagine is why Paul felt it so necessary to address immediately within his first letter to Timothy. There's only one way we can see the expansion of God's kingdom. That is to hold firm to the true gospel. The effect of us doing this will see people coming to a clearer understanding of God and what Christ has done for them. 
however, we see in verses three and four, uh, three to seven, the distortion of this message will be completely ineffective in the expansion of God's kingdom, and it can also lead believers astray. Two words that I think go hand in hand with Paul's words here, I think is productive and destructive. On the one hand, you have the true gospel. Christ died for your sins, and it's only through believing in him that you can be made right with God. That's productive in changing hearts to Christ. But on the other hand, you have false messages that are destructive to the expansion of God's kingdom. Well, hopefully by now you have some sort of idea about the dangers that false teaching and deceitful messages can bring. How about we now have a look at the power by which the true gospel can save? We see in verses 12 to 17, Paul moving on to explain how powerful the real gospel is by giving an account of his own testimony. And what's the big theme coming through this passage here? I actually think it's abundance of mercy. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. The grace of the Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on then to give Timothy this trustworthy saying. Now, if you're going to take away one thing from this talk, I really want it to be this trustworthy saying, because it actually just gives us so much of the insight and the, uh, the view on God's mercy and the abundance that it is. <clears throat> Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example of those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now, to grasp just how exceedingly bad Paul was before his miraculous conversion... You only need just to go back to Acts chapters 8 and 9 for some context. Within these chapters, we see Paul, who was Saul at that point, um, going from city to city, persecuting the church. He had just approved of the stoning of Stephen, and he was now locking up Christians everywhere he went. He He was probably one of the most passionate Pharisees ever to have lived. It's as if Saul was fueled by his hatred towards Christ's church. It's like he was the leader of an ancient version of the Gestapo. In light of Paul's past, we can see a glimpse of the unlimited mercy and grace that God can give so freely. In saving Paul, the worst of sinners, God demonstrates that the death of Christ is actually sufficient to save anyone, no matter what their past. That's the power of a true gospel, of the true gospel. To have more of a modern-day example, let's consider Osama bin Laden a man that has allegedly been responsible for some of the worst terrorist attacks in history, a self-confessed persecutor of Christians or infidels. Now, when I think of Osama bin Laden, I'll be honest, a miraculous conversion isn't something that I kind of put together with that. But what are we to learn from Paul's testimony? Even Osama bin Laden is not outside the limits of God's forgiveness. So doesn't Paul's account just fill you with a sense of joy and hope? Well, if it not, if, if it doesn't, it actually should. It gives you the ability to go to work or school in your secular environments and not be depressed by the thought that your schoolmates or your colleagues can never be saved. You might think, nah, look, 
John could never become a Christian. He's too into partying and, you know, living the fun life. Or you might say, Jess, look, she can never become a Christian. She's too obsessed with work and her career and that kind of dominates her life. You see, it's a common attitude we we have sometimes as Christians. We look at the non-Christians in our life with a sense of hopelessness. But I will reiterate what I've been saying all along. There is power in the true gospel. God was able to change the heart of Paul. I know he can change the heart of my non-Christian friends. Just imagine how the apostles would have viewed Paul in his day. With all that he was doing to the church, he would have been the last person they would have picked to have been carrying the message of God to the Gentiles. But Paul tells us that for the very reason of us having hope for our friends, he was saved. To be an example that no one is beyond, the ability, beyond God's ability to forgive and save. But this hope doesn't just stop at our friends. I mean, we as humans have an awesome ability to get down on ourselves and think that when we're struggling with sin, we're beyond God's forgiveness. I'll think of some pretty extreme examples to hit home my point. Say you've been busted for smoking weed by folks, and in complete shame you thought, look, mum and dad just came down on me so hard then, look, I'm just so unforgivable by God right now. Or you might have slept with your girlfriend or boyfriend in complete shame, just thought, no, God can't forgive me, not now. In those moments, do you actually consider yourself worse than Paul? Remember, he was the worst of sinners, and he was used as an example to show that no one is beyond forgiveness. There is nothing you can do that will separate you from God's forgiveness. That's the beauty of the true gospel, that Christ has died for our sins once and for all. We don't have to keep doing things to earn our salvation or make penance for things we've done. Christ's death and resurrection has done it all for us. God's grace knows no bounds. So let's live in a life, live our lives in thanks of that. And this is why the truth of the gospel must be preserved. It's the only message that gives mankind a way into good relationship with God. Even after the times in our life where we think that can't happen, surely. That's the power of the real gospel. So note the power by which the true gospel of Jesus Christ can act. It can change the worst of sinners back to a good relationship with God and sanctify or build up all of God's children throughout their lives. That is the only gospel that can bring such results. Anything else will only end in tragedy with a trail of confusion and division. So we're reminded in the final verses of this chapter that there is a constant battle between holding on to the faith and rejecting it. A battle between standing for, for and believing in the true gospel and being suckered into false, a false way of thinking. Friends, there's going to be times in your life when you are going to be confronted with a message of Christ that does not match with the message that you would hear to now that gets preached in this church. We know that we're sinners and that it's only because Jesus took our punishment on the cross and rose again that we can have life. I'll keep saying this, Christ has done it all. We don't need to do anything more to deserve this gift or update the insurance policy every couple of years. It's finished. We're in relationship with Jesus now and forever. It was this message that brought Paul, the worst of sinners, into relationship with Jesus. 
And it's this message that will bring our non-Christian friends into relationship with Jesus. So how are you going to react when you hear something that contradicts the simplicity of the true gospel? Are you aware of the true gospel and, its power, and the power that it yields? Are you so in tune with the true gospel that when anything else comes along, you'll be ready to dismiss it? The deception you hear may not always come from someone within the church, however, or it, in fact, most times it's the world around us that bombards us with this deception. The kind of deception that makes you fall victim to the desires of this world. For example, you might think, do I agree to be paid in cash to avoid being taxed? Or do I remember that God wants us to live honest lives? Or you might think, do I go that one step further with my girlfriend or boyfriend? Or remember that as Christians, God wants us to be sexually pure. Paul outlines here the necessity to constantly fight the good fight by holding on to a faith and good conscience. Verses 18 and 19. We do ultimately have the victory through Jesus Christ, but remember just because we're victorious does not mean there's going to be no battle beforehand. To fight the good fight and ensure that we hold on to our faith, the first thing we need to do is realise that it's actually God that works within us and that he's given us a spirit, a Holy Spirit of discernment. So practical ways of living by the Spirit is to first and foremost come before God daily in his word and prayer. That's the backbone of our relationship with Christ. And being involved in a Christian community and church adds to and strengthens this. So I guess you can imagine the battle a bit like this. There's two dogs inside of you. One dog represents the Holy Spirit and the other dog represents sinful nature. Now, these two dogs can't stand each other. They hate each other. Thus, they're constantly fighting each other. But neither dog fully dies. However, depending on which dog you decide to feed more will ultimately depend on which dog is winning the fight and controlling your life. Let's say you decide to fill your life with things that are not of God. You know, you stop reading the word, you stop praying. The sinful the dog that represents the sinful nature starts to have more of a control over your life and can lead you more susceptible to deception. However, if you feed the dog that represents the Holy Spirit by ridding yourself of sinful acts and coming before God in prayer and word, then you'll be better able to live by the Spirit and know when false doctrine is coming at you. Remember, victory is assured, yet the battle still rages. So this begs the question, which dog do you feed more? And which dog is helping you fight the battle of discernment? I started with an illustration from the legend of the Trojan horse. I'm now going to finish with a kind of similar illustration, but with a more modern-day twist. So there's a variety of computer virus today called Trojan horse virus. Now, this is a type of computer virus that can get leaked into your computer via various methods, you know, including emails from friends. The thing about the Trojan horse virus is that it doesn't look bad at first or immediately kill your computer. At first, nothing happens, but over time, it will infect your software and slowly corrupt and destroy all your files. Like the deception that comes from false teaching or doctrine, the message at first may not look bad, and it may seem somewhat similar to the true gospel, and so you might decide to click the receive button 
But over time, the reality is that you've bought into something that doesn't conform with the true gospel, and it's going to destroy you. Try and view the true gospel as something like a virus checker that never needs updating. I'll just put that disclaimer there. Um, if you hear a message that does not match with the true gospel of Jesus Christ, then a little message should come up on your brain, and it should say something like, warning, virus detected, do not click receive. So friends, I want you to hold firm to the true gospel of Christ and don't buy into false doctrine or meaningless rubbish. We can see by the salvation of Paul himself that God's mercy knows no bounds. He was a true enemy of God who was forgiven of all his wrongdoing as an example for us now. The true gospel has the power to save lives and change hearts, whereas the false gospel has only the power to destroy lives and leave people stagnant in their sin. Friends, I want you to please continue encouraging each other as you fight the good fight and hold on to a faith and a good conscience. I'm just going to pray now. Heavenly Father, I thank you that at this church, Lord, your true gospel is preached. Father, thank you that it is by your true gospel that we can have salvation, Lord. Help us to know, Lord, that anything that deviates from the message of Christ crucified for our sins, Lord, that we might not even, even give it a second thought, Father. Your gospel is good enough as it is, Lord. It saves us, Lord. It is so gracious. Help us to remember this, Lord, and not to be suckered into second-best teaching, Father. Lord, I just pray for Laurelie now as she comes up to give her testimony. Please be with her and speak through her, I pray, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever come to a point in your life where you realised you were doing something, but you didn't really have a good reason for why you were doing it? It was more a habit, just part of your routine, than something you'd actually chosen to do because you wanted to or you understood why. When I was younger, my Christian life was a bit like that. Church, prayer and the Bible all became kind of regular parts of my life. It was what was expected of me. My parents did it, so I did it too. I never really questioned why. For me, it was normal. Gradually, I understood, though, that just because my parents believed something and they believed that they would go and spend eternity in heaven did not mean that the same was necessarily true for me. Going to church no more made me a Christian than being in a garage makes you a car. I realised that if I wanted what they had, that I had to make a decision for myself. Not that you can make a decision just to be a car and it will happen. Um, I used to think I had a pretty good life, that I was good. And if I wasn't really so bad, then what did need did I really have for Jesus? I mean, like, Jesus died for sinners and I hadn't murdered anyone. I hadn't stolen anything. Sure, you know, I lied a couple of times. Sometimes I fought with my brothers. But they were little sins. They didn't really count for anything. They were things that everybody did. My concept of sin was kind of skewed. I had this hierarchy of, you know, bad sins and not so bad sins. A concept based on the things that I did or didn't do. And it was these things that made me either a good or a bad person. It was when I understood that sin is not so much what we do or what we don't do, but the fact that we've rejected God and don't want anything to do with him that sentences us to hell. That was when I realised that I was in need of a saviour. If I wanted nothing to do with God now, then why would he want anything to do with me after I died? 
By ignoring him, I would be choosing to be separated from him for eternity. I would be choosing ultimately to spend my eternity in hell. And there was no way that I wanted to spend eternity in hell. So what could I do? Like, I couldn't earn my way into heaven. I'd stuffed up. I wasn't perfect. I needed another way. This was probably about the time when I understood why Jesus had to die on the cross. He was the only truly perfect one. And by dying on the cross, he had taken on the punishment for my sins so that I could be made right with God and be seen as holy and pure in his sight. Not by anything that I'd done myself, but rather because of his love for me and his desire to make it possible for me to have a relationship with him again. I mean, that just totally blows me away that a God would love me so much that he would send his only son to die for me. I didn't have to do anything. God didn't have to do anything. Like, he could have just sat back and let me go to hell like I deserved for ignoring him my whole life. But he didn't. Instead, he chose to send Jesus, his only son, to a death so painful and horrific that I can hardly comprehend, just so that I could be made right with him again. I cried out to God, I said sorry for my sins, and I asked him to come into my life to change me and be my friend. Many times throughout my life, I've had to sit back and evaluate my faith and the implications it has for me and where my life is headed, in the big decisions that I make, but even more importantly, in the day-to-day -day situations and the way that I react to things and treat other people. Allowing Jesus to lead my life has saved me from so much pain. There was a point in my life where I wondered why I should hold back from doing anything. What I mean is that if God is willing to forgive me for whatever I do, and nothing is too big to be forgiven, then why can't I just do the things that I feel tempted to do, and then say sorry afterwards and everything be alright again? Fortunately, God worked fairly quickly on my mindset, and I didn't live my life according to this twisted motto. I understood that if I believed God was powerful, that he was capable of changing lives, and that he loved me so much that he was willing to pay the price for my sins, then I couldn't go on living the life that I've been living before. I had to respond. It was natural for me to want to change my life. So for me to live what others would see as a good life was not what caused God to notice me. It wasn't the reason God had chosen to save me. That was Jesus. Instead, the way that I now live my life is a reflection of all that God has done for me and in me so that others might see that the God I have chosen to follow is powerful and loving. To continue living as I had when it had cost Jesus so much would be pure selfishness. I refused to just be a Sunday Christian, devoting a few hours of the time he'd given me to attending a church service every Sunday. I wanted the change that Jesus had made in me to be evident to everyone. I seriously started considering what would Jesus do in situations. And today, like, I still ask myself, if Jesus were here, would he be happy with what I'm doing, with what I'm saying? Would he be watching this movie? Allowing God to become the center of my life has shaped it into something amazing. My concept of God is continually growing and developing. I love the fact that he is way too big for me to try and define or to put in a box, that he's willing and patient to teach me the things that should be important in my life, whether I see that they're important or not. About this time last year, I was working through a job guide, wondering what God had in store for my future. I'd applied for courses at various unis, but I was still waiting for some kind of direction from God, some divine intervention about what I should study, where I should study it, and who I'd be living with. I wanted something in the pages of the job guide to just jump out at me, to have that feeling that I was absolutely sure that this is where God wanted me to head with my future. 
I was praying every night for some clear direction. My parents were praying too. Lots of people I knew were praying. I'd sat my exams, I'd entered some uni preferences, I'd even done work experience in heaps of areas. But nothing happened. I started this year at uni studying speech pathology, still doubting if I'd chosen the right course, if I should be moving out of home to Melbourne and going somewhere new, or if just maybe I'd made a mistake. Though I may not understand it, I believe that God has a plan for my life. And looking back on this year, I can see the way that he has grown me and the things that he's taught me. I think of all the people that I've come into contact with, and I know that God has blessed me in this. In my stepping out, even though I didn't know what my future held, even now and still not knowing where my life may lead me, I'm still convinced that God will use us in whatever situation that we find ourselves, if only we're willing to let him take the lead and show us what he wants to teach us. He loves us. After paying so much for us in his own son's suffering, do you seriously believe that he would now ignore us? No, he wants to be a part of our life, to share in our joy and comfort us when we suffer or are sad, but he can't do that unless we let him. Jesus' death on the cross is a free gift which we can either choose to accept gratefully or ignore. What will you do?